Welcome back to Therapist in Motion, brought to you by Spoon Physical Therapy. It's the start of 2018. This is our first real podcast that we've done uh, in quite some time, so uh, hopefully you will be intrigued as, as Paul and I are here. Uh, topic today is, you know, there's this misconception from new grads that certain types of manual therapy aren't really effective or efficient. And some of the clinical guidelines that have been put up by the APTA, uh, in some regards, support that. So we've got some special guests with us tonight that we are going to debate and uh, have some lively discussion. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. All right, tonight Paul and I are joined by two very special guests. One returning guest, Mr. Greg Johnson, the co-founder of the Institute of Physical Art, and his son, Ryan Johnson, who is a physical therapist out of IPA Manhattan. Um, so welcome, gentlemen. We're very excited to have you here in warm, sunny Arizona. Uh, we are very thrilled to be here, considering the temperatures right now in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and in uh, New York City. Yeah. Uh, invite me back more frequently. I uh, love it. <laughs> you are always welcome to come back and hang out with us, uh, co-treat with us, you know, hang out and go drink some scotch. That sounds fantastic. Um, so, you know, let's, let's just kind of start with the... You know, Greg, I'll ask this to you. Uh, you know, you've been practicing physical therapy, manual therapy for a long time, have studied with some of the greatest and well-known physical therapists and, and, and manual therapists throughout the, the United States and parts of the world. So what's your response when you hear, whether it's a new grad or a licensed, ther- a seasoned therapist say, you know what, your types of manual therapy don't really have much of a difference on on, on a patient outcome than you know, what I learned in physical therapy school 15 years ago. Well, I will try to answer that. But first of all, Paul, I'd just like to say a special thank you to Dan and Paul and also to Spooner Physical Therapy for being able to host this uh, podcast that we're able to participate in. Um, This is really one of those challenging issues of our time. Uh, It's one of those areas that uh, divide individuals. But that tends to be the medical profession's kind of heritage, is that there'll be always differences of opinion, whether it's how we have nutrition, what we do with our exercise, uh, what we eat and drink. And so um, this isn't unusual, and I think it kind of is a very lively debate. I think the challenge for me is, is, is after having spending, spent 48 years now studying with some of the greats, and watching individuals make a difference in a patient that others can't. And when we come down to expertise compared to non-expertise or pattern recognition before you actually have pattern recognition in your early stages, uh, there really is a significant difference that I've had, that I've observed over these years of an expert's clinician's accomplishments on patients that others have been struggling with. That's where I really go. It's the ones that I have observed being treated and the understanding of process, the understanding of history, the understanding of that individual's symptoms, uh, a lot of times are what leads to interventions that are effective. Uh, In my fellowship, I frequently have fellows who say, Greg, neck pain's just not getting better. I've, 
I've done soft tissue work to it. I've manipulated it. We're doing PNF on it. They're on a great home program. We've trained them in so many different things. And I step in and, and I say, well, you know what I see is a very specific limitation in these soft tissues that need to be treated. Or there's a specific joint that needs to be manipulated in a specific way. And their often response is, well, I've already done that. And usually it's interesting is a week later that patient's coming back and said that made all the difference. And those experiences for my fellows are what makes the difference. It's when they have that happen to them. As I had happened to me in my early years with Maggie Knott. Maggie, I can't get this patient to use their pelvis and gait. And in five minutes, that pelvis, that pelvis is moving because Maggie does it. It's the experience that is important. And so the challenge for our profession is, is if that paradigm of not having to develop specificity, not having to work your tail off to, be, to train your hands to be the eyes of that human's body that you're touching, to be able to perceive what's under there. If we do not believe that we can develop those skills, then we won't. And that's the challenge is that the greatest excitement of my life as a professional has been accomplishing things on patients that have been mind-boggling or having others that I've trained be able to achieve changes that seem to be unrealistic. And it's because of the fire in their gut that they want to get better and because they want to help those patients that is the difference. And that's really what I see as, as the challenges is how do we help individuals not to get stuck in the belief system that specificity doesn't matter, that the development of skills doesn't matter, that ultimately that manual therapy doesn't matter. One more thought before I let you continue on with your questions and <laughs> Ryan gets the chance to talk because I'm definitely dominating the mic right now. But the, the one other aspect is, is that we have to understand that research is about a group. So every research project studies groups. Every treatment is about an individual. How we really believe that research can tell us how to treat the individual is a mind-boggling experience. If one research project came out and 100% of the patients had a, a response that was consistent across the board, then we'd say that would be truly a significant research. But I've never seen one. Everyone it probably will never exist. That's just the way it is. It's because it doesn't, but we're going on averages of groups when we come up with something to say the experts don't make a difference. Plus, I'm not sure who the experts are that have been doing the specific techniques and therefore how much training they truly have. I'd like to take my 48 years of experience and be able to put them in that arena. It's just hard to develop an arena to be able to actually test that is the biggest problem. And <clears throat> to play devil's advocate for, well, not to play devil's advocate, but to answer the question of what a lot of people would question is I've heard from relatively new grads that, oh, you know why that person's getting better results is because, well, they have a better rapport with the patient. So they're able to convince the patient that what their intervention is going to be is going to be more effective. And because of their charisma and their ability to communicate with that patient, they get better results. 
But I have to be honest through my experiences going through the fellowship with you and with other um, very, very talented clinicians. I've had patients who don't trust having a mentor come into the room. They are nervous about it. They, they express verbally to me prior to it of, I don't know if I really trust this. I trust you. I don't really know if I want this person coming in. And yet those patients still sometimes have better results from what I believe is a specificity. And, and I don't think that you can just pawn it off and trying to say, well, Greg Johnson, my father, is just better at convincing people that they're going to feel better. It's not that that doesn't happen. It's not, it's not that it's not important to actually try to be a motivator for patients and try to encourage them that, you know what, I think you are going to feel a lot better after this. But you can't explain all the changes with that. And when it comes to neuromuscular reeducation and motor control training and getting them to be able to do a pattern like you were talking about with Maggie, all the stuff that everybody's talking about, about it being convincing, pretty sure most of that's due to symptoms, uh, my pain, my tingling that I'm having. How much of that is ever due to function of being able to move in a pattern? And your experience is watching somebody create a functional change of having somebody pull into a movement of their pelvis that they were not able to do before and you were having trouble facilitating before Maggie walked in. I don't think you can just explain that purely with it being somebody saying, you know what, I'm just better at convincing that patient that they're going to be able to do this. I think specificity has to matter and that it has to be a component of what we look at for continuing to develop our skills. I love everything I'm hearing and I'm curious then too, I know you guys are here in town for a course and I know you've discussed a lot of things that you've learned, but what, what drives you to continue? I know you already mentioned that you love that challenge of helping the patient that's failed everywhere else and making that breakthrough. But what do you do to, to keep fueling the fire and to keep learning more as you go on time? Who is going to answer that question? Since my son is tongue-tied right now, I'll go ahead and answer this one. He blew his mind with the entire question. <laughs> you know, well, I uh, can answer that, but it comes much more exciting well, when somebody's done it for years. 48, years. 48 years. How do you continue to feed the fire after 48 years? years? experience combined with even our listeners that are here, plus <laughs> the three of us sitting at this table. For well, those I don't have 48 years of breathing experience. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so <laughs> I'd love to hear why you still get passionate after 48 years. I can tell them why I'm so passionate after my seven years. Yeah. You know, but it's easy, but it, it is more intriguing to me to hear from you. Well, you know what? I, I often wonder that myself, but for only brief periods of time, because each day when that opportunity to serve somebody that needs help arises, that is all I need to find value and worth in all of the hours that I've spent studying and to be able to justify um, the efforts that I put into becoming the best I can be. And it's not for me, it's for them. And it's every one of those individuals that have a problem that I can't solve that drives me more because my underlying premise since the very first day I began in this profession is that I could help anybody. 
and all those that I haven't helped hasn't tarnished that intention to make a change in that next person. Each one of them are somebody that when I focus on them, uh, and when I'm, when I truly do that, and there are days that I'm not as good as others, uh, that when I'm really there, I'm in a space that is what I believe athletes experience when they go into their zone. That there is a, a relationship that's set up between myself and them and between me and their body and their problem. And I am a problem solver. And that's what I do. And I am willing to do anything. And therefore, I am not stuck into any pattern of thought. Uh, it's more difficult at 70 years old not to get stuck in patterns of thought. But it's, it's a challenge to look at everybody fresh without having to say, I'm going to use A, B, C, D in their treatment, but to discover what is their true need. That's my driver. And therefore, every time I take a class, it's about gaining knowledge and wisdom to both treat the patients and also to pass it on to others so that they can accelerate their learning process through the, the, the system or the approach that I teach. Yeah, I think uh, I want to go back and kind of highlight a couple of things that you said, both in your first answer and in that one. Um, first, you kind of, you know, you talked about specificity and um, <laughs> it's kind of hard to focus right now with Ryan. Um, <laughs> you better take that out. <laughs> I'm not taking that out. Um, <clears throat> you know, you talked about specificity and seeing with your hands. And I think that's something that that's hard for a lot of people to truly conceptualize that you're going to see tissue with your hands. No, you see things with your eyes. Um, but, you know, going back to what you just said about, you know, your challenge to better yourself and that drive to see those people that are, that you can treat and fix anything. And if you have the right mindset going into that patient and you have a, you, you have a, a some understanding of what you're going to pretest. And that's going to kind of guide you where you're going to go with the specificity of your training. And then you're going to post test and hopefully see a change. Yes. Um, I, I think that that's an extremely valuable thing for people to learn and to hear that putting those two things together of having specificity with your treatment, having intention with your treatment and seeing with your hands because as you guys are probably noticing doing anatomy trains, seeing the tissue and feeling it in your hands now is giving you clarity of what you've taught for 40 years and or challenging what you've taught for 40 years. And in, in the long run, that's going to make you and the people that you interact with so much better. And then that scope of the people that we can truly help, regardless of who walks the door, is even broader. Just piggybacking on top of what you're saying there, it's uh, where you're going and saying that we're always looking for the next thing that we can do for whoever it is. Uh, I have so many patients who come to me who have failed physical therapy. I mean, it's just that that's that's my normal caseload in New York is, hey, I've been to three other physical therapists and it hasn't worked. So I don't think you're going to work. But you know what? My friend told me I need to come see you, so I'm, I'm here, whatever. 
try. Not even kidding. That that just feels very familiar to me during initial evaluations. And yet it's the drive to not just say, well, you know what? I did this manipulation, this manipulation, and this one, and it hasn't helped you. So your physical therapy is not going to help you. It's this problem solving, which is actually going back to the initial question of, what makes me passionate on a daily basis is the fact that I have a job that is different every single day of my life. I, I get to come to work every day and treat patients and there's never one treatment that's going to be the same. I am not going through, I'm not putting a wheel on the right side, right front side of a car every single time, every day. It's just, it's just totally different than that. And being able to say, you know what, that didn't help, but I'm going to, I'm going to, Find, find something else. And I, I'm determined. I, I think it must be genetic, but I'm, I'm competitive. <laughs> I, I, I guess I just got this competitive, determined, driven gene inside of me that wants to be able to solve things that other people haven't solved. And, and you know, maybe there's a egotistical thing about it. Maybe it's just the challenge of it. Maybe, you know, it's just I'm going to climb this mountain and nobody else has climbed this mountain. Uh, but there, there is that, that drive of saying, I am going to solve something. And then there's also the humility, which I believe I try to possess, which is, you know what, if I'm not making a change and I'm just feeling like I'm stuck in a rut, I'm going to get somebody else to come in. And I'm blessed to work in a clinic where we have times where we do collaborative treatment. And uh, there's times for me to say, hey, you know what? I want to set up a treatment where the two of us are going to work together on this patient. Let me see what you're seeing. And then if that person doesn't help, I do another thing. And if, you know what? If it's not me, I'm in a place where I can't do dry needling in New York. You know what? Why don't we get you to go see an acupuncturist? But I refuse to believe that just because they don't respond to just basic like physical therapy interventions, that that person can't be helped. And that refusal is really what drives me. And even if it's not me who's, even if it's their nutritionist, you know, uh, that's the person who solves it, getting them off of something that they've been allergic to or that they just can't handle in their body. Or maybe it's sending them to the correct di diagnostician who finds, uh, I don't know, something that they got while they, they were vacationing overseas. Um, it doesn't matter because I want to quarterback it and I want to give them hope that there is something that can be done for them instead of being the person who says, you know what, I don't think there's hope for you with what I'm being able to provide. Yeah, I think that what you said there is very, very valuable about, <clears throat> you know, how many times, Paul, do you see patients walk in the door where they say, I've been to two or three other therapists and you start asking questions about what their therapy was and it was basically you can infer that it was techniques that they learned in physical therapy school, exercises that they learned in physical therapy school or on YouTube or on these subscription-based services, not to belittle them, but that's a different way of learning for people where they're like, oh, I'm just going to plug and chug this because I think that it's going to work. Or I saw this really smart person say that this should you should do this with this patient population that is where physical therapy, unfortunately, in my opinion – and I, I kind of want you to reflect on this a little bit, Paul. In my opinion, is it's kind of at a at a standstill, and and we're 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 struggling with that because that's unfortunately more of the norm than it should be. You're dead on, Dan. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I I hear a patient like Ryan said that will come in and say, you know, they failed previous conservative measures, whether it's physical therapy or 
numerous other services and you talk about the exercises or the manual or whatever they did and it sounds like the first result on your google list for shoulder pain exercises <laughs> that's what i'm Classes. hearing from them yeah, yeah cool right, easy <laughs> And one of the things that Ryan said that really resonated with me was that everyone that walks the door is different. Every single individual has a completely unique circumstance. And how in the world does research possibly capture the individual that, again, might respond to acupuncture or needling or maybe had some foreign trip and had some bodily response or has an inflammation issue or has some dietary issue or just the number of potential possibilities is astronomical and can't possibly be captured within this small little confine. But being able to appreciate then that there are some things that can be beneficial and, and that can be learned from research and science too is also important. We wouldn't want to go completely to the other end of the spectrum. And I am just a little bit curious as well, because I know, as Greg said, one of the one of the things that you look at in research, and I've yet to find a research article that has 100% of these subjects responding in the same capacity. But I know as a member of the IPA Google group that you still read it decent amount of research <laughs> that's every an day. understatement <laughs> yep 95 percent confidence interval that whatever the significant number of research articles read per day greg has exceeded it and then yes. some <laughs> absolutely guaranteed <laughs> i've been to courses where he is in the back reading during his free second <laughs> so you get something out there so we all can learn from it which is awesome thank you for that anywho i want to know then from both of you guys so what do you see i know some of the research articles i've loved actually have a result that is against the hypothesis that has no statistical significance, but you can still take that Morse lot of there like, oh, well, that's cool. I really like that. Or some that say, you know, this isn't, uh, this, this is pretty straightforward. This is beneficial and it seems simplistic, but yet you might still find people that applies too well. So what are you looking for as a consumer of research? I'm, I'm going to give a very general answer, answer and then I'm going to let you come in with yeah, more specifics. But my general answer is I feel like when I read research, I'm not looking for, okay, is this technique or is this the exactly cookie cutter method of how I'm going to approach patients? I look at it as, okay, they did mobilizations for this or they did exercises for this and 70% of the people got better you know, within six weeks with this much improvement over people who were doing general exercise. Um, why? The why and the what might that be affecting and how might I apply that principle but maybe tweak it a bit for the individual that's sitting in front of me versus just, oh, well, I tried this exactly like this and it didn't work with this person. It's the why is it working and, and it's something that we continue need to look into. I mean, we're both very big supporters of wanting more research out there. We're trying to get research in our approach. And as you already mentioned, my dad is a huge consumer of research articles. <laughs> and so it's, we definitely do not be, like have this vendetta. We just don't believe that you can say, well, because the research has not proven it, it doesn't work. And because it has not proven it three times, it doesn't work. Well, there are, there's always a first time that somebody's got to try something in the clinic before it's ever researched. Isn't the same dude that's been researching ultrasound for the last 30 years yet to find like more than five things that it's actually successful for, but he still does it. So I, I think your point there is exactly right. Like just because the research doesn't say that it's, it, it's indicated or it's contraindicated doesn't mean that it someday couldn't be proven or disproven. 
Contraindicated might actually be more of one thing that I'd be <laughs> more. <laughs> Let's keep trying this. It really didn't go as, well the first time. As, well, as long as you said contraindicated, I probably should mention if something comes up in the research and says you really probably should not do this because you might really hurt somebody. That's valuable research. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> so. Well, I think that there's just so much variety out there now of research. It's really overwhelming. Uh, I've got a couple search engines that provide me everyday abstracts uh, from every known journal out there that has something to do with anything that we treat. And what we treat is pretty much everything from head to toe. There isn't a structure in the human body that we do not attempt to enhance its performance and its function. Uh, but... It's, it's an article that comes along now and then that just so excites you, like uh, the recent research into the upper cervical spine, looking at your suboccipital muscles and seeing that there's a myoneural bridge, that actually those muscles are attaching to the dura. And all these years of treating these suboccipital muscles and having people have their headaches go away and feel like their back pain improves and that the tension, neural tension diminishes never quite made sense. And now all of a sudden, research has enlightened us to what we naturally were doing, so it reinforced it. So for me, there's so many areas like that that research is helping us. And and I'm just uh, absolutely uh, a believer that it is our responsibility to know what is the research out there so that we can be owners of that in the level that is necessary for each patient but we do not believe it it's the holy grail that research is always seeking truth but rarely finds it and in your experience i've heard you say this uh phrase humble pie every once in a while (laughs) and how many people over your 48 years have been so adamant that just you know what that doesn't work because we can't prove that there's anything going on in the suboccipitals that could ever lead to a change in that so I think you are just sort of crazy in your ideas to now having research start backing it and having to quote unquote eat their humble pie because they were so adamant that because research had not shown it, you were wrong. And now it's coming back around. Well, I just say that it's the patient in front of you that matters. That works. (laughs) And, and, And the willingness to try anything to make a difference in their lives because you know, you we were talking about our ego and about how satisfied we are in our job and how we love serving patients. But I really think a physical therapist should even look at the fact that they change their community. They enhance the quality of life of each person in that community. Even if they don't have pain, they know somebody in pain. And if that, that physical therapist has intervened to change that person, that person's family, the environment they live in, the city they live in becomes a better environment. And so I often say we as physical therapists are the Peace Corps of the medical profession, but we're also the bartenders. We hear everything and yet we still want to keep giving. On that, finalizing my last comment on that is just what you said is it's always about the patient. And I did not mean to go in a direction that sounded like it wasn't because it really is. It, it really is 
who is that person in front of us and am I willing to try something that may be a little out there, a little out of the box, but it makes sense anatomically and it makes sense based on what I'm feeling with my hands and it makes sense based on the symptoms that you're reporting and that detailed subjective history that I've gotten from you and really diving into everything that I know about you. I think we should try this. And if you're the person who's willing to try whatever it takes to try to make that patient better, I think you've got the heart, you know, to continue pushing yourself to be the best manual therapist, the best physical therapist, and the best servant to our patients that we can possibly be. Yeah, I think I want to kind of end on what you just said there, that I would say part of my response to people who say that specificity of manual therapy doesn't matter are people who are unwilling to do what you just said, or they're not driven. They're scared that they're going to fail. They're scared that that patient's going to think, mm, nope, I'm not going back to that man or woman because they are just crazy. They, I, they had no idea what they were, were doing or what they were trying. But when those therapists take that chance and step off that, that, that unfamiliar curb or ledge or cliff or whatever you want to call it, that's truly when they start to realize the power that does lie in specificity of manual therapy and being able to truly help that patient that otherwise would not have been helped. Absolutely. And if you're worried about patients thinking you're crazy, the majority of patients who are in long-term chronic pain that just want anything to get out of that pain, they are the last person to think that you're crazy, especially if you just set it up correctly. They're never going to say that you're crazy. They're going to say, thank you for trying. Sometimes they just need a little crazy, quite honestly. They need someone to <laughs> spice it up. Nothing yeah, wrong yeah, with and it. think differently. Mm -hmm. You know, Dan, I just want to reinforce on a point you made because I really think it is in, intrinsic in our profession. It's really part of our present environment. Uh, is that young people nowadays have gone through a life in which they've really never failed. You know, they haven't had to recover from failure. And there are many wise people that would say it's because of failure a lot of times that they became great. I can say that I can rest on on a lot of my present skills upon failures I've had in the past and how I've learned to overcome them. And that's really the challenge, I think, for the young generation that we're talking to right now is that if you really are afraid of failing, then you're never going to have that joy of being the best you can be. And, and I'd also just like to even further enhance on that, that, that when we um, are afraid of what other people think, uh, that maybe we are a little outlier. I've been known as an outlier since the very beginning and before the term became one. Uh, I've always been that way. Do I choose that? Absolutely not. But... I, I would like to be completely embraced by my fellow physical therapists, but there are a group out there that see my willingness to treat everything in the human body as being something that is uncomfortable to them. Therefore, I'm placed in a, in a different position. And I just got to say, we as physical therapists have to make that choice. Are we willing to step out of the box to help our patients? I think we've had some really good discussion here, and I think it's also springboarded for some of our future discussions that we're going to have uh, again tonight. So 
for our listeners out there, stay tuned. We're going to have a multiple part series here with, with Greg and Ryan. Um, as always, we're, we very much welcome your feedback from our listeners so that we can get better um, and to better deliver content for you all. So if you do have any feedback for us, please do not hesitate to email us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. 